tune. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. Our reading this morning is from verse 22 to verse 29. Acts 22, verse 22 to verse 29. hear the word of God. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Amen. I would like you to imagine this morning for a moment that you are standing at the edge of a cliff and, and you're looking at the horizon at a beautiful landscape and all of a sudden the, the ground beneath your feet crumbles, disappears, and you start tumbling down towards the rocks below. In that moment, there is a choice you can make. You can either despair and resign yourself, accepting your faith as inevitable and your ruin as sure, or you can choose to trust in something or rather in someone who is greater than yourself. I'm sure none of us has ever experienced, or I'm almost sure none of us has ever experienced falling off a cliff in a literal fall. But we've all, throughout our lives, have faced moments where that sinking sensation of doom that leads to despair is there where we are faced with crisis with uncertainty in our lives where we feel the proneness to despair 
about what is happening to us. And we too, at that moment, we have a, let's call it a choice. We can either despair and resign ourselves and accept our fate as inevitable and ruin as sure, or we can trust in the sovereignty of God who is too wise to be mistaken, too good to be unkind, and trust that his plan for our lives is best. As we come to this passage, as we meditate upon Acts 22, verse 22 to 29, we witness a vivid illustration of this, of God's sovereignty in the midst of crisis. The passage reveals how the Lord's providence is at work ordering all things together for the good of those who love him, for the glory and expansion of his kingdom, for the ultimate deliverance of his people from sin and death. And God works this providence through many ways. God undertakes in many different forms in, uh, in, the, in, in this passage. Some things were providences that were brought into, into play now, but they have been, been in place ever since the birth of the Apostle Paul. Other things are happening more closer or, or providences that are being displayed closer to the occasion. But nonetheless, God, in his wisdom, is able, because he has ordered all things from beginning to end, to make it so that his glory would be magnified, that his people would be comforted and encouraged. And that is the source of our comfort. That is the source of our encouragement. It is the source a firm, sure assurance in the midst of uncertainty. When we are faced with crisis, when we are faced with tribulation, with affliction, when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, it is knowing that God is the Lord of history, the sustainer of the universe, and it is wise, he's gracious, and he's sovereign, sovereign to govern all things connected to our existence for the greater good of our soul and for the promotion of his kingdom in the world. That is our theme this morning, the providence of God. It is not the first time we deal with this in the process of, the, uh, of going through the book of Acts, but it's nonetheless needful to be reminded of this time and time again, especially in circumstances like the ones we've, we find ourselves uh, dealing with in, a, uh, in recent times, when we are faced with, with tragedy. Do we despair or do we trust that is what God would have us to, to draw from the wisdom of his word and from the collective experience of his saints and to be encouraged not to despair, but to trust. Paul, as we saw last week, he came to Jerusalem 
seeking to bring the offering that he has raised in the Gentile churches in Asia Minor and in Achaia and Macedonia. He comes to Jerusalem. He, he finds opposition there by the, by the Jews. Uh, they, they beat him up uh, uh, outside of the temple. Uh, in the Lord's providence, the, the Roman civil authorities come in uh, and rescue him from uh, what I would say is sure death at that moment. They bring him to the barracks, to the fortress Antonia that was just outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And as he's going up those stairs, he, he asks for permission to address the Jews, the crowd that was following closely behind that mob. He raises his hand and they... they, they there was a great silence, and he tells them of, their, of his story. How is it that this man arrived at, at this place? And he rehearses there at the steps of the Roman fortress in Jerusalem. His conversion, baptism, his calling, his vision in the temple, and his commission from the Lord. And as he's speaking, he says, Then he said to me, this is the vision in the temple, verse 21, that's where we left off, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And it is, it is at this moment that we come to the text this morning, it is at this moment that Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us that the Jews became furious. They were fine, up until this point, while Paul was rehearsing his personal witness, testimony of salvation and of calling, but as soon as they heard Paul speak about his commission to the Gentiles, about his calling to go to the, to the Gentiles, they angrily interrupted him. They raised their voices. It's a, a mob-like fury that they, they, they displayed. You see, the, Gen the Jews had no objection necessarily to the fact that Paul was going to the Gentiles. That was not the problem for the Jews. It wasn't that Paul was converting Jews to Christianity. The Jews didn't have any problem with that. Their problem... In fact, the Jews did, did this. They, the, the proselytes, the, the God-fearing Gentiles, they wanted them to become converts. What they had a problem with Paul's uh, teaching and with Paul's uh, commissioning was that Paul was affirming that Jews and Gentiles are equal. It was the equality of all of this. So for a Jew... His problem wasn't so much uh, with regards to the Gentiles. wasn't so much that Gentiles were converting to Christianity. It was this idea that you could become a Christian without becoming a Jew first. They were angry because Paul was saying that Jews and Gentiles are now equal. And they start throwing their clothes, uh, taking their clothes off, uh, their, their outer garments off, and they start throwing, excuse me, dirt in the air. Uh, and and, they're, and they're this, there's this 
animal reaction on their part. They start throwing dust into the air we breathe. It kind of reminds you uh, of, the, of what Paul had just said that happened in the days of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, they took off their clothes and they, and they laid them at, at Paul's feet. And, and Paul was, uh, was complicit with this. They, didn't, they did not want Paul to do this. And the sense is that if they had their way, at this moment, they would have killed him. That's what they wanted. It seems like this is the, the, the direction that this is going. Just the sheer enmity that exists in the hearts of these Jews towards Paul shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because if you know your Old Testament, you've quickly realized that more often than not, the people of Israel were a stiff-necked people, rebellious in nature. They were the ones that said to the, to the seers, as we read in Isaiah, have no visions. We don't want to you to have visions. They said to the prophets, have, prophesy no longer more. They didn't want to hear. They were the ones that said to the prophets in, in two chronicles, hold your peace. It is often the case that the world does not want to hear. And they'll go to great lengths either to plug their ears, sil- or if they cannot plug their ears, they'll silence their mouth, the, the source of, of the prophecy, of the message. And that's what they're trying to do here. And what a scene. What a, how irrational. How illogic and unreasonable it is that for someone who is convicted of their ways, believes that his ways are truthful, not being willing to engage in conversation. It's intolerant. Our world knows a lot about tolerance. We pre- it seems to be the, the ruling uh, uh, character of the day. Tolerance. And yet, we're probably not at a point in our history where we are the most intolerant. We allow for no disagreement. I'm speaking uh, we uh, as we uh, this culture. We want no dissenting opinions. If I, if I say I'm a woman, I'm a woman. We'll redefine what a woman means. If I say that it's a clump of cells, it is a clump of cells. And how dare you disagree with me? You're not allowed to speak. We'll silence you. We'll cancel you. We'll, we'll, we'll take you off of this, uh, uh, the platforms you use. We're not too far away from that happening in our day and age. Yes, we're probably still uh, quite a bit away from the murder, from murder to silence, dissenting opinions. But we're not too far away from seeing churches, Christian associations, Christians in general. This already happens, being silenced because of what they say. 
This happens today in our culture, in our country. And people go nuts and they shout and they behave irrationally, unreasonably. Truth is never afraid to engage in open dialogue. But error and falsehood never wants light to be shown upon it. So the Jews rejected Paul. They didn't want to listen anymore. They know where this is going and they're not willing to engage. They rejected Paul. They rejected Paul's message. But in fact, what they were doing is rejecting God himself. They were not fighting Paul alone. They were fighting Paul and Paul's God. And they rejected him. And then we come to verse 24. Uh, in order to calm down the situation again, uh, the commander, and that's a providence of God, that there were civil authorities there who would uphold uh, peace or who would maintain the order in, uh, in society. The commander says, verse 24, ordered uh, Paul to be brought into the barracks, into the fortress, and said that he should be examined under scourging no, uh, so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So the commander, not being a Hebrew, not being uh, someone who is from, from the, around those areas, he probably didn't hear anything or understood very little of what Paul had said uh, in his discourse to the Jews. What he saw, and you can imagine uh, the, uh, the scene, he saw uh, Paul being allowed to speak, and all of a sudden, this great multitude, this mob, uh, is shouting again. So he must, this guy must have done something wrong, right? The majority is always right, right? No, but, but that's how he acts. So he, he brings him in, and he wants uh, to know what's happening. Uh, he, he didn't understand anything. So what does he think? Well, I know what I'll do. A few lashings, a few scourgings will sort out this terrible situation. He figured Paul must have done something wrong. This man must have done something wrong. So let's investigate what it is. Bound him up, scourge him. He'll start to speak. And that's what they did. They bounded him with thongs. Bounding someone with thongs would be literally to stretch the, the, the person's body to, the, to, to its extreme as he's tied to a, to, a, to a pillar of wood, of rock, as he's tied to somewhere. It would be to stretch him as much as possible so that as the, the, the whip scourges you, because the skin is already so stretched, even the little, uh, little uh, touch will break the skin and will leave you in great pain. It will right away cut the flesh, the muscle, and the tissue there. So that's what they did. They bonded him in, in thong with thongs. That's how it is now. And, if, if the, and the scourging would usually kill or it wasn't too unusual or too uh, 
out of the ordinary for this kind of scourging to kill. But if it didn't kill you, there's records of, uh, because this is still a step further from uh, lashes. Uh, there's records uh, of this crippling uh, people for all their lives. But Paul never had scourging. He, sp he speaks of being uh, lashed by the Jews. But this is a first. And you know why it is a first. Because he was a Roman. And Roman law said that no Roman citizen should be scourged in this way. It was... Uh, the Portia law, or Lex Portia, the Valeri, Valeria law, the Lex Valeria, it forbade uh, Roman citizens from enduring this kind of punishment, the flagellum, as it was called. Two very famous Roman lawyers, uh, we have many of his writings who are uh, left to us uh, uh, through the centuries. One is Ciceros, you heard of him. He, he said something along the, uh, with the sense of the, about the magnitude of this. He said that uh, bounding or uh, imprisoning, uh, uh, manhandling a Roman citizen is a crime. To whip him is an abomination. But to scour scourge him is tantamount to murder. Suetonius, another very famous lawyer, a orator, as they were called in, in uh, the Roman Empire, he says, any Roman who violates or any man who violates the right of a Roman citizen will be executed in the Esquiline Hill in Rome. And here we see something of, Ro of Paul's candor, something of Paul's love. We've already seen it last week. We, I didn't mention or I didn't um, highlight this fact. But you should notice, and we, sh we should be instructed by Paul, Paul's actions, and we should follow him as an example. Paul was beaten up in the, uh, in the temple. He's brought into the, uh, by the Roman authorities into, into the palace. He asks to speak or to address the Jews in front of him. The Jews, by the way, that just beat him up to a pulp. He's standing there with uh, beaten and bruised, blue and reds and all kind of... He's probably swollen up because of the beating he just received. And how does he address them? With love. With no resentment for what they did just do. Paul did, in fact, love his kin. And that's demonstrated how he addressed them. But here again, here is Paul on the verge of receiving the most severe punishment outside of crucifixion, that is, in, the, in Roman law. And what does he do? Does he panic? Does he start... Uh, Law being vindictive, uh, uh, accusations and insults at the Romans that are doing this to him? Does he resort to invective? No. He gently asks a question. 
A question that we will see actually is very gracious on his part towards the commander. Because what he's about to do would sentence that commander to death. He's actually being very gracious in asking this question. Which leads me to ask, was Paul trying to save his skin? Or was actually Paul trying to be gracious to this man, this commander? Because Paul wasn't afraid of dying. He, he came to Jerusalem having been forewarned by the by the spirit that this would happen, knowing precisely that these kind of things were going to happen. And he was, as he said it, ready to die. So it doesn't seem to me, or it's not immediately obvious to me, that when he asks this question, that his primary motivation of asking the Roman commander, or the, in this case the Roman centurion, uh, if it is lawful to do this to a Roman citizen, it doesn't seem immediately obvious to me that he's trying to... F to to be spared from dying or from pain and suffering. I think he's actually understanding quite well the situation. He's sparing the commander. If not, if that, if this was not his complete motivation, this was at least part of it. And he speaks with gentleness and with love, and he's winsome. Even though they had beaten him, even though, or even though they were about to beat him, it doesn't burst out. Paul would have accepted the punishment. He wasn't afraid to suffer. If there is one person in, uh, in the book of Acts or in, in the history of the Christian church, save for our Lord, that is seemingly content with suffering for the cause of Christ, is Paul. He says the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be ours in the world to come. I fill up my body, the afflictions of Christ, if I have to suffer on the sacrifice of your joy, he says to the Philippians, rejoice. Paul had the ability to endure all kinds of pains. Remember the stocks in Philippi? Is it Acts 16 when he was arrested with Silas in Philippi? Remember how we looked and saw that the stocks were, those shackles that, that lay them there were not some kind of very comfortable pieces of jewelry or, or fashion statements, that he was actually there stretched in this dungeon. And what does he do in the midst of that suffering? He's singing. He's singing to the Lord. I don't know how much pain he felt, but I sometimes wonder if he had this in the providence of God as well. One of these rare conditions that make people very tolerant to pain. But spiritually, 
If you were to ask Paul in the midst of all of this, he would say, the Spirit will sustain me. And if I die, I die. For, for, for me, to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's what he said. So he, it's not immediately obvious to me that he's afraid of dying here. But it's not immediately obvious to me as well. And I don't think it should be because it, it is not his attitude that he wants to die. He's not some kind of masochist that likes to suffer or glory in his suffering in that sense. But if he has, he will embrace it. And in the process of, of saying this, he's probably saving the life of this Roman centurion. And when the centurion hears of this, or when the centurion hears of this, centurion, uh, as the name implies, century, uh, is the commander of a hundred men. Uh, he goes to, the, to his commander, to, uh, we'll read in the, the next chapter, I believe, his name, Claudius Lysias. He goes to Claudius Lysias, uh, and he tells them that, that Claudius Lysias would be the commander of 1,000 men. So in the hierarchy of Roman commanders, the centurion was below uh, Claudius Lysias, the commander. Uh, and he goes, he tells them, look, be careful. This man just told me that he's a Roman citizen. And this is a day where you don't have passports. But, but expediency would say in, in situations like this that perhaps the best solution if someone claims Roman citizenship, is not to do anything, investigate it later, try and find out the records from the, the, the municipality where we, he was born. And if he's lying, you carry on with the punishment. But if he's not lying, it is the right of every Roman citizen. And this was the, the Lex uh, Julius. It was another law that, was, that came after those two, the... Uh, that I alluded to before, the Lex Julius said that any Roman citizen, upon uh, judgment, upon being faced with, with a, a decision by a judge, is um, capable and is authorized to appeal to Rome. That was one of the greatest rights of Roman citizens, was that uh, if faced with any judgment within the confines of the Roman Empire, judgment that was regional, that was uh, to do with a, a particular uh, local government, that they could actually go, well, I want to appeal to Caesar. I want to go and present my case. I want Caesar or Caesar's uh, uh, representatives to be the ones hearing this case and they will pass judgment on it. It is my right as a Roman citizen. Not everyone, by the way, maybe this, this is helpful for some, not everyone who lived within the confines of the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. Only those who were citizens of the city of Rome or those who were citizens of state, uh, uh, city states uh, like Philippi was, for instance, has automatic Roman citizenship. Either that, or you could attain Roman citizenship by serving in the military. I believe this was one of the ways. After you served for an X amount of years, you would be granted uh, Roman citizenship. You would be given a, a plot of land somewhere in the, in the Roman Empire. Or thirdly, 
as it is apparently the case with, with this commander, you could bribe someone. You could buy your way into Roman citizenship. And what Paul is saying is quite actually, quite, actually quite, uh, quite interesting. When, when this whole interaction occurs, uh, he, he go, the commander is surprised. Are you a Roman citizen? And he goes, I paid a huge amount of money to, uh, to, to have this Roman citizenship. And Paul just said, well, you paid a lot of money for it. I was born a Roman citizen. You are a second-class Roman citizen. I'm a first-class Roman citizen, basically telling him this. You've, you've been adopted into the citizenship. I was born in it. How are you, how are you uh, a second-class Roman citizen, dare to flog or to scourge uh, or to punish unjustly a first-class citizen? And you might ask, how did Paul... How was Paul born a citizen? Well, because either his father or his mother, probably his father, uh, was a citizen. And you may ask, how was his father a citizen? And I'll say, I don't know, because we are not told. But what is true is that this was a very persuasive argument on the part of Paul. Because as soon as they heard these things, they immediately, those who were about to examine him, which is a very nice way of putting it, those who were about to scourge him, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. No one dared to raise a hand. They knew the punishment and the, pay, the price that had to, would have to be paid for doing it. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was Roman. And he was afraid because he had bound him. That commander was in, at the very least, at this moment, not making any other uh, not taking any other action with regards to Paul, at the very least because he bound a Roman citizen, because he shackled Paul, he was at the very least under the threat of imprisonment, possibly losing the citizenship that so dearly cost him, at the very least without doing anything else. This is where it stands already. And had he continued to do what he was about to do, he was facing the penalty of death. We'll look at uh, what happens uh, more. Uh, Luke will then tell us uh, next week, we'll look at it, that Paul will address again the, the, the Jewish leader. So the, the commander doesn't want to deal with it. So he brings them again to, before the Sinedrin. Uh, to be uh, to be judged, but we'll look at this uh, next week. So, what lessons can we draw from a passage like this, brothers and sisters? The first lesson, and I believe it is relevant in our day and age, quite relevant, is that is related to Paul's Christian freedom and the fact that he claims Roman citizenship in order to, to escape the terrible scourging. In this world, we are sometimes faced with opposition and with, uh, with uh, persecution. And the, 
there are two extremes that are both wrong. They are both ill-advised and not God-glorifying that we can take when we are faced with these things. One of them is to be complacent and to, to compromise in a bad way. The other one is to be sinfully rebellious. As we face um, opposition, as we face uh, persecution, persecution is probably a little bit too far already, but as we face opposition, as we face oppression in this world, we cannot either become complacent, nor can we become rebellious and anarchical. What do I mean? Let me use an example. And I think Paul illustrates how this uh, balance is to be attained. Let me use the example of COVID. I think COVID has been, uh, is enough on the rear view mirror that no one feels too strongly about it now. With COVID, we were faced with a dilemma. Either we obey or we disobey. Uh, and the question is, how do we obey and how do we disobey? And I think on both sides of the, of the argument, Christians and churches and Christian organizations did the wrong thing. Let's talk about more specific about a lockdown. Some churches closed in the lockdown, and I would argue that that was sinful. I wouldn't say all of them. I cannot say all of them. I'm not judge to say all of them. But some of them, it was out of complacency, out of fear of death out of sinful attitudes. But on the other side, some churches remained open and defied the dictates of the governments, both of England, Scotland, in America, in Canada. We've seen the videos. And I would say some of them that remained open were sinful as well because that was a rebellious attitude, an anarchical, rebellious, sinful attitude. And I think Paul's attitude illustrates the balance that glor the, the, the glories uh, the Lord or that exalts the Lord in all of this. The same Paul that is able to say in Romans 13, uh, submit to your authorities. The same Paul that encourages the, the believers to obey the civil magistrate also argues against them when they are acting outside of the confines of their own law and out of the confines of their God-given right. Civil authorities are God's ministers for good, not evil. And they are, we are called to submit, to obey, and to respect, and to honor them. 
But when they act outside of the sphere that God has given them, when they act in evil ways, when they are not being ministers for good, we are called to challenge them. Not in anarchical ways, not in calling up rebellious uh, uh, um, revolutions. The Christians are not revolutionaries. We've never been. True Christianity, at least, has never been rebellious. But we do all in our capacity to call them to account for their mistakes. Therefore, Christian organizations, Christian churches can and should feel free to use legal means at their disposal to appeal the decisions or the actions of the government. I don't know if you remember, but we did that as well. In the second lockdown, we did not close, and we went to court with several other churches here in the UK, uh, in England, to court with, with the government. In the Lord's providence, that that case was dismissed, or we dropped that. Uh, the case was dropped by the by the the plaintiffs, by the ones putting the case forward, by the churches. But that case then went on to be uh, judged in uh, in Scotland at the beginning of of the following year, and the Lord uphold, uh, and the Lord undertook, and the decision was ruled to the decision to close churches was ruled as wrong. And I think this is the way where you navigate that balance. You challenge, you submit when it's good. You challenge and you and you and you call to responsibility when they're acting outside of their lawful, given place. But we don't do, and I think I've mentioned this as well, we don't do what so many so-called Christians did a few months ago in in Brazil uh, upon the election of a left-wing president. So many Christians there, evangelical Christians, they stormed the Capitol building with their flags and 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 they were... Promoting revolution. I don't think that's how we further the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ is not a political endeavor, even though we engage as well in the political realm. And Paul illustrates that balance. Submit on the one hand, but whenever they fail and whenever they they fall short, challenge them. Secondly, This episode illustrates as well the way that the Lord provides and delivers his people. I already mentioned this uh, in the the introduction. But the Lord provides and delivers his people. We're not immune to suffer, to, to, to be persecuted. Nevertheless, the Lord delivers us graciously out of the hands of those who would seek to do us harm, whether they be the Jews or the Romans, whether they be in our day and age, whoever might rise, the Lord in his providence delivers us. Paul's life was preserved so that he could continue to give testimony of Christ to others. And our lives are also in the hands of the Lord. As I said last week, we are immortal till the Lord's work is done with us. 
While the Lord wants us here, while there is work to be done, the Lord will deliver us from all kinds of evils. Thirdly and quickly, I've already mentioned this, but the anger of the, of the Jews towards the, the, the Paul and the Christian message again illustrates how the opponents of the gospel will always react. They won't listen. If they cannot plug their ears, they will silence you. They will try it. In our culture today, there will hardly be those who will want to stone us. Perhaps some would, if it were not for the restraints of, of, of society in the common grace of God. But there are other ways of opposing and oppressing. There are other ways of demonstrating this animal-like outrage. And we see it in our, in our day and age in cancel culture. In, I'll use another example that happened not too long ago. And it's to do with the, in the realm of, of civil authorities as well. Last year there was this conversion ban therapy. Uh, or this conversion therapy ban, better said, a law that was trying to be passed. I believe that the government is still trying to pass it and will eventually pass it. And again, following the same principle, not as a church in this case, but I as, as a Christian, I joined a, a, a signature declaration. I signed a declaration that sought to address the government, uh, address the concerns of Christians uh, be, to the government about some of the language that was on that conversion therapy or uh, conversion therapy ban legislation. I'm not sure if that is really uh, profitable. I'm, I'm still trying to make my mind on signing these things. But one thing that happened. Uh, was because the, the declaration was public and because it got some traction with, uh, with the, the news uh, uh, media. Our names of a couple of thousand, I think, pastors and, uh, and ministers of religion uh, throughout the UK, our names got public as well, were publicized. Immediately on social media, people started attacking every single name on that list. If they could find them online, they put some. They they started attacking, and that's the oppression. If they, they cannot stop us from speaking, they will try to. Or if they cannot stop uh, hearing us, they will try to stop you from speaking. And uh, that happened there, and that happens in our culture, in our day and age. And that's why we need to be prudent, we need to be wise, we need to be courageous, but we need to be as wise as serpents in, with some of these things. Not to lose our uh, moral backbone, not to condescend or, or to compromise with biblical truth, but we need to be wise in the battles that we fight and when we fight them. But finally, brothers, it's, it's the, the message from the beginning. It's God who is working in his providence. And God will, wants Paul to go to Jerusalem, and he will get there. Opposition, accusations from both Jews and Romans will, will, will appear. But the Lord has called the Apostle Paul. According to his purpose, he will 
see his mission to the end. And God will see to it. The Bible teaches that according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained that inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that he, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that we have a sovereign God who is most wise, most good, and everything that comes to pass comes to pass in his wisdom and in his goodness for the good of his people and for the glory of his kingdom. And nothing that comes to pass is a mistake. So we can rest, even if we face adversity, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ.